Thank you, music team, this morning. You regularly bless us, and it was a special blessing today. To have you, uh, uh, most of you younger folks, who count out a couple of you, but uh, to see you leading and and uh, have been here long enough to have known you in diapers, it's pretty cool. I try not to imagine that while you're singing, though. It's a crazy world we live in, isn't it? Crazy on a thousand levels. We're more and more aware of it all the time. You know, we, uh, we're the frog in the kettle, right? The, the temperature just keeps coming up and rising up and rising up, and we keep just getting along with it. We just keep dealing with it. This morning, I want to challenge you with an idea that perhaps if, uh, as believers, if we can sit in the midst of the messy culture we live in, the brokenness of our society, of our world, if we can watch the news without a little bit of heartbreak, maybe we should be discontent about that. If we can watch the news, read the paper, hear what's going on around us, and at the same time, be cool with it, maybe we should be just a little concerned about where we are. So I just throw that out there into the discussion, into the milieu this morning as we get started. And I want to tell you a a couple of stories about counterculture. I want to wrap up two concepts that we were laying alongside one another for the last, oh, seven or eight weeks, that, that there is a time for holy discontent. And that God calls us to holy discontent. That God places us in the midst of some things, sometimes, points at them and says, do something. And that breathes into us a kind of discontent that we should be thankful for. That when when we see certain kinds of things, it should stir our hearts. And it's not the same for everyone. It's different. Some, fee- some people are passionate about certain things that don't, don't move me at all. Other people don't understand my passion for things that don't move them at all. We're each a little different. It's a good thing because we're, if we all did exactly the same thing, there'd be one really healthy part of the world and everything else would be a mess. But God reaches us where our discontent should be and stirs us up just a little bit. I, I told you when we started this that maybe Popeye has the best words for this. And I know it's long enough ago that you probably don't remember, but do you remember Popeye's line right before he reached into the, the can which he ripped the top off or stuck his fist into or something like that? Do you remember what he used to say? I've had all I can stands and I can't stands no more. Remember that? And he'd reach in, pull out his spinach and off he'd go. At some point in our lives, it's some event, something we see, something stirs us. So for some, it's the lost. And they are just heart on fire for evangelism to the lost, trying to touch the hearts of people who are, who are unable to find their way home, unable to find Jesus. They, they, just, they just bleed for those people. For others, it's the, the homeless or the needy, the people who, who don't have a, 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 an assured meal, 
maybe in, maybe in days or even for, for some folks weeks. It just, it just kills them that, that they can take their plate and, and finish enough to not, to not really be full, but not really be hungry and toss away the rest without thought. It just kills them that other people don't have enough. And so I want to talk about one side of that, which is that side of being discontented, to be, to be a person who just is disturbed by some of the things around us, while at the other side, being completely content in the covering and grace and the assurance and, and the complete need fulfilled in Jesus. So to hold those two things in our hands and re- let them be the balance of our lives, to be discontent about some of the brokenness in the world and completely content in Christ. So let's, let, let's wrap sort of a, a bow around all of this, tie it up, put it back in its package, or, or, or maybe just save the bow for next Christmas. But whatever the, our, we are, I, I want to talk about somebody who found both of those things. It's a, it's a, I'm talking about it because it's been a movie lately. It happened on May 5th. 1945. Skinny little guy who joined the military because he really was passionate about his country and about the patriotic needs of his country in the midst of World War II. May 5th, 1945. He'd already received, most people don't realize, he'd already received medals, a silver star for his work in, a, in, a, in, his, in his service for the previous few, uh, few months. And now he found himself on May 5th, 1945, on an escarpment where a whole bunch of his platoon were wounded. You remember the story of Desmond Doss? You probably, maybe you've seen this movie. I understand it's really, really intense. It's one of those things that might throw you, might make you a little uncomfortable in the culture's ability to consume things like this. But under a tremendous fire with bullets zinging around him, he lowered somewhere between 75 and 100 people over the edge. Both Americans and a couple of Japanese as well, by the way. All the time while crawling around up there, one prayer over and over again. God, let me get one more. He just kept pulling them back, lowering them down. But this guy had, had been swimming against the stream of the culture, the sort of locker room culture of the military, now for quite some time. It started in boot camp and it worked its way through his platoon assignment for his entire entry into the military. It had been difficult when he tried to pray. The people within his platoon that, that were his, his, his mates, the people who knew him better than anyone else, would throw their boots at him while he was praying. When he refused to carry a weapon, one of his friends said, when, when the bullets start to fly, I'm shooting you first. He'd been swimming against the current, the culture, by saying, I want to serve, I want to help, but I won't kill anyone. And swimming against that current day after day after day after day. Today, we celebrate those decisions until the moments when people actually saw him in action. No one celebrated Desmond Doss. No one. 
until they realized that Doss's prayers made a difference in their lives, no one in his platoon celebrated what he was doing. No one. When he said he wanted Sabbaths off, no one in the military supported his decision. He was constantly being an embattled soldier, but the, the battles he was fighting were against his own side. And then one day, he started to prove his mettle. And people started to see the value in this skinny little soldier who refused to carry a gun. When you swim against the stream, you usually have to prove your mettle. Christianity by its nature is a counterculture movement. By the very nature of what it is, it's a counterculture movement. Think about it. We live in a sinful world where power and, and violence rule. And yet, here is this, this organization, this group that teaches that we should love one another. That as far as it is possible with us, we should be at peace with everyone. It's a complete counter to the norms of the culture. And it's been that way since the beginning. Jesus was constantly in the face of the people around him, not because he wanted to be most of the time, but simply because of what he was saying. He was teaching things that were just difficult for people to get. They just, it just was hard for them to understand. I'll give you a, a, a place to find it. In Acts chapter 17. If you have your Bible with you, Acts chapter 17, 1 to 6. If you uh, have your device, you, just, you, you know what to do. I won't tell you to turn the page. Acts 17, 1 to 6, this is how it starts. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. This is written by Luke. Luke is a Gentile. He wasn't a Jew who became a Christian. He's a Gentile who, who becomes a Christian. So when he speaks of the Jews, he doesn't speak in the first person. It's not our people. It's those people. It's the Jews. It's those others out there. So that's why he's saying a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went, to, it went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now stop there for just a sec. Do you recognize there are still folks who, who struggle to find that the disciples kept the Sabbath after Jesus' resurrection? Well, here you go. Acts chapter 17, if you're looking for a place, there you have it. Acts 17, starting at the first, it's like second verse, there it is. Paul, as was his custom, went into them, went to the synagogue, and he preached from Sabbath to Sabbath, reasoning with them from the Scriptures. By the way, that's why we still go about this process we're in right now. We are doing as the apostles did. We are doing the thing they did. We, we go through and try to reason from the scriptures to an understanding of how we apply the things of Jesus in our lives, in our times, in our culture. So we're still looking at the same process. Verse 3, explaining and demonstrating that the, that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying this, Jesus, whom I preached to you, is the Christ. He teaches them that the one they expected to be the king of kings, the one who would rule the world, who would transform Judaism to the most powerful nation of the world, who would overcome all those who were the enemies of, of Judaism, he taught that that very Messiah, that figure that they waited for, had to suffer and die. Very counter to what they expected. Sort of in the face of what they expected. He's supposed to be in charge. He's supposed to be the man. He's supposed to be 
omnipotent. And he was all of those things, but he was humble and he was submissive and he laid aside all of that so that he might suffer and die. So here's Paul trying to teach these folks that everything they knew about God was not true as they understood it and that there was something different. Boy, we ought to watch, watch ourselves when we want to hang on to ideas that are in the face of what we're learning from Scripture. We ought to be careful about that. We ought to, we ought to recognize that this is our authority, not this, not this, but this. And that when we learn things that run, a, run against the culture that we live in, we probably should just expect it. Verse 4, and some of them, the Jews, were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, now devout Greeks would be people who were following Judaism who weren't born into it, and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. Sorry, ladies, you get kind of thrown in as an add-on in the, in the first century. You, were, you at least got mentioned. That, by the way, is also rather counterculture. We don't realize it, but the scriptures are very counterculture where women's issues are concerned. Just women's issues were in the Stone Age, so every movement was just a little one. Today it would be like, wow, okay, that's not much. But then it was like, wow, what are you doing? You're talking about the women. No one talks about the women or the children. But the Jews, who were not persuaded, becoming envious took some of the evil men from the marketplace. And aren't those guys always around? Can't you always find a crowd of malcontents? They took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out, of the, out to the people. So they're, they're trying to get them sort of drawn and quartered. Verse 6. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city crying out, and this is the piece I want you to hear most clearly. These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. These people, these Christians, these folks who have turned the world upside down have come here too. So what did they do? What, what kind of things did these guys do that turned the world upside down? They're not that many of them. By this time, there may be 20,000, 30,000 at the most, and that's a, that's a big number. But in the entirety of the Roman Empire, not that huge. Shouldn't be making the kind of impact that they're making, but they are. They're teaching things that are turning things that people are used to seeing upside down. The world is getting turned upside down. So they preach Jesus. So here are Paul and these others. They're simply preaching what Jesus taught. So what did he say? Well, Matthew chapter 10, whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. So going after and chasing after your life, apparently, isn't the right direction. Somehow. Anybody want to volunteer to not go after life? Yeah, me neither. Because the opposite seems to be going after death, Right? It seems to me that, that the, the scripture says, if I chase after Jesus, if I, if I go after the things of God and lose my life, I find my life. See, the problem with that is we're only thinking in this temporal world where we live. We're thinking in the here and the now and the, and the two, three score or two score and seven that we have, two score and ten, maybe three score and five. We, we may make it even to, to five score, but even at that, you're, you're, in eternity, that's that much. 
we're only thinking about this moment. What, what the Scripture is saying is there's an eternity to be gained, and this really isn't that big a deal. What we have here, what we have now, isn't such a big deal. We know it's all we have, right? You know, when my dog goes and eats the same thing every day, twice a day, he eats a little bowl of dry food every day. He eats it with relish. He waits for it with drool dripping out of his mouth. If he knows it's time for him to eat, he sits just at the edge of where you're feeding him. Now, in our house, it could be the kitchen. It could be that he's outside watching through the window. But it doesn't matter. Drool begins to drag, drip out of his mouth. Why? Because he's dying to have that dried up, who knows what it used to be, little kibbles of stuff with his entire heart. This, this dog loves his meals. That's us. This world is dog food. The world we live in with all that we have and with all the things we're enjoying. And, and, and I'm not saying, you know, oh, hate your life. I'm not saying that. But I'm just saying get some perspective on your life. Jesus is saying if you've got the best life on the planet and you lose your eternity, you've messed this thing up. It doesn't really matter how good things are now. It's how good things are then that really matters. That when your eternity is secure, if you lose your life in the pursuit of the gospel for the sake of Jesus, you find your eternity. Now, he's not also putting some kind of weird, misshapen theology in place that says you must die in order to be saved. That's, that's a messed up theology from a different religion, and we don't buy that. We reject it completely. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is that the, the, the real important life is your eternal life. The real day that starts the joy of what God intended is the last day of this messy old planet's existence. When this place finally blows up, when it's gone. That's when real, amazing, God-intended life gets started. See, do you see how that might be just a little counterculture? He then said in Matthew chapter 20, so the last will be first and the first one will be last. Anybody waiting to be last in line? Nobody. Right? You don't get a prize for coming in last. You don't win because you were at the end of the line. But Jesus said, the last will be first. And the first will be last. It's like Jesus gets everybody lined up to go into class. And then he walks to the back of the line. And he takes that kid who's so slow on the playground he can't even get to the line before everybody else. He trudges in, but there's like a gene he doesn't have. It just, his feet just don't move fast. You know, he just can't make that happen. It's not working for him. He's always at the end of the line because he just can't. He's not that motivated to get off the playground. Stop and think about that for a minute. And the teacher goes to the back of the line and starts with him. And the guy or gal who's in the front of the line is like, wait a second. I ran all the way. I left kickball before it was over so that I could be first. And you went and brought in Sammy the Sloth to go first. It doesn't make sense. The first will be last, the last will be first. It's not the way our world works. It's not the way things work. We don't want people who don't want to try enough to even try to get in line before the last person. We don't even want to hire those people, right? We don't, want that. we don't want that person who's so content they become lazy, right? We don't want the person who's so content they sit on their couch and they never move, right? 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 But Jesus says, when, when I have chosen you, 
and listen to the context. The context is that moment when the when the the, the owner of the field goes out at the harvest time and collects people from the for, for working in his field. The first at the beginning of the day and the last with just like an hour left and pays them all the same wage. What Jesus is saying is if you just if you just sneak through the door as the final door is closing before the end of time, you get eternal life. And if you got through the door first, if you were the very first one through the door and you're smiling, you got a little purple star on your forehead because you were first, you get eternal life. Because the kingdom is not about first and last. The kingdom is not about who gets there in what order. The kingdom is about eternity. And so that last person who gets through the door is celebrated just as much as the person who saw all this coming and made it at the beginning. Be careful about stratifying faith. We sometimes think, oh, those persons who are really smart and really wise and have been spiritual giants for a long time, and we look at them and we go, oh, man, look at her. She's awesome. Look what she does. She knows so much. When I, when I need information, I go and talk to her because she knows more than anybody else. And I just sit down and I talk to her, and it's like, it's like angels from heaven speak when she opens her mouth. God says, you know that, that guy you never talk to? Because every time you see him, he's just scraping by. He's barely making it. He can barely hold together his own spirituality, let alone have anything to help you with. You know that guy? I'm just as happy he's home as she is. Because they're home. And what matters is not three score and ten or Five score, what matters is eternity. The real prize in this is salvation that lasts forever. Restoration of relationship with Jesus Christ that we were always meant to have. That's what really matters. Peter would preach, Therefore humble, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time. Do you know that that due time may not be due until you have become fertilizer? And fertilizer has been raised back to life. The exaltation of the human life may very well never happen in the human's life. Crazy. Really swimming against the stream. Really counterculture. Really behavior that's different than the way we think and act and are driven inside. Wow. If 2017 was our year to really be counterculture, do you know we would get some tie-dye shirts and we would get some placards and we would just show up and every, every time there was some kind of a, a thing we could protest against, we'd just march back and forth and we would say stuff like we will overcome or something. We would, we'd find some great awesome slogan to wander around and, and yell and, and we would wear our cool looking stuff to be counterculture. But is it really all that counterculture? Maybe it's just another version of the same one. Still kind of broken, still kind of messed up. Maybe we figure we'll be counterculture by voting conservative. Or maybe we figure we'll be counterculture by voting liberal. Maybe we figure we'll be counterculture by throwing our lot in with some different group that we've thrown our lot in with now. But the reality is the culture is the culture. 
different breeds, different brands, different approaches, but it's the same messed up world. And I'm, I'm again not saying to abandon it. There's a moment when Jesus speaks to your heart and calls you to, to speak into it, to work for it, to change things. And when he does, grab your placard, your tie-dye shirt, and go for it. But recognize that no matter how much repair job, how many repair jobs we do on this broken old Model A, it's still a broken old Model A. It's, it can be painted, it can be spiffied up, it can be cleaned up, but it'll still be old and wearing out, even at its best. That the real win is an eternal win, and that's the only win. So, Jesus has a publican problem. Did you know that? Jesus has a publican problem. I love the alliteration of that, Jesus' publican problem. He's always hanging out with the wrong crowd. Now, if, if I, your pastor, were seen at, a regular t- at regular times hanging out with, and you can name, you can fill in who your publicans and sinners are. You, you, everybody has their own kind of list, right? If you knew that I was hanging out with publicans and sinners but on your list all the time, that it was a regular habit of mine to look for these people to hang out with, what would that do to my reputation where you're concerned? You see? You see, the religious establishment said these people are on the outside. These people are people who aren't even really allowed to come into church. They can come, but they better not say anything. And they better stay in the back and sit down and be unnoticed. They don't do the right things. They don't have the right clothes. They don't have the right attitude. They just need to stay back there out out of the way of the rest of the folks. But Jesus seems to always be seeking these guys out. In Luke chapter 15, tax collectors and other notorious sinners. I love the way this is translated in the New Living Translation. Notorious sinners. He's got the, all these people have their picture in the post office. Jesus is hanging out with them. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law complain that he, is, he was associating with sinful people and even. fingers out of the hummus. You make the hummus unclean. Have your own bowl. So Jesus told them this story. Now, I want you to think of this story as an illustration from Jesus about hanging out with notorious sinners like you. So Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? This is one of those questions you're supposed to know the answer to when they, when they ask it, right? I always hated these questions in school. Because if you don't know the answer to this question, you feel like such a crazy idiot. Well, I don't know. I don't know. What am I supposed to do? What would they do? I have a hundred and they lost one. I don't know what I would do. I always felt bad about those questions. I felt worse about these questions because everybody else in the class seemed to know. Oh, yeah. 
This is one of those. The Pharisees are supposed to understand what they would do. Just in case they didn't, Jesus explains, which I always appreciated. Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness? Now stop for a sec. Does a shepherd just leave them out there wandering around on their own to be eaten? What does a shepherd do with the 99 who are in the wilderness? He finds a place for them to shelter where they'll be safe while he is gone. He's not abandoning them. He's leaving them in a safe setting, a safe place, while he goes out and looks for the others. Okay? So he's put them in some sort of a pen. He's given them some sort of a place where it's safe. Maybe put them in charge of some, uh, some underservant. Somebody's taking care of him. Somebody's watching out for him while he goes out and he looks for the other one. Will he leave the 999 in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? So this is also supposed to be an obvious answer. The Pharisees are supposed to go, oh yeah, yeah, that's what you do. That's what you do. You, you go looking for the one that's lost. It's supposed to be normal and understanding that within the culture that they actually lived in, this was supposed to be clear to them. Okay, wouldn't you go after it? If you lost your iPhone, wouldn't you look for it? Well, yeah, I'm hoping I got that little thing on my other devices that'll tell me where it is. Right? Find my iPhone. Oh, no, I didn't turn it on the iPhone. Right? Then you're asking people, could you call me? You're calling people to call you. Could you call my phone? Stop and think about that for a moment. And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he has arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me because I found my sheep. Who are the friends and neighbors of shepherds? Other shepherds. Who would understand the best bringing home your lost sheep? Other shepherds. Right? So Jesus is bringing them home to the group who really gets it. And he says, Look what I found. And they're like, Yeah! I don't think any of you are reacting in that way. <laughs> but they would have. Rejoice with me because I have found my sheep. He was lost and now he's found. Woohoo! <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> I love you guys. I hope that's on the tape, but I doubt it. <clears throat> Hold to my the tape. By this, by this time, a lot of men and women of doubtful reputation were hanging around with Jesus and listening intently. Do you realize Jesus has been out looking for his lost sheep at the beginning of the story? He's out where lost sheep hang out. He's at the lost sheep bar and grill. You know, and there they are, all the lost sheep sitting there, hanging around, doing the lost sheep thing. Whatever lost sheep do, they're doing the lost sheep boogie, right? And Jesus has gone there to find his lost sheep because that's where lost sheep hang out with other lost sheep. And so Jesus at the very beginning of the story is the story. You see it? The, the point of this story is to illustrate what he's doing. He is out there with his lost sheep right this moment. And these guys are all frustrated and upset about it because here's counterculture Jesus hanging out in a place where lost sheep is. You know why? Because his heart burns for lost sheep. Because his heart breaks for lost sheep. Because he knows these people are lost. They don't even know they're lost. The sheep don't know, don't know where they are. Don't, blah, blah. They don't know where. Would somebody say this for me? They do not know the way home. They need someone to go out and find them. And so Jesus is out there with them, finding them. He's hanging out with them. Now he's even 
He's eating at the Lost Sheep Bar and Grill. Whoa. Amazing. And the Pharisees walk in. They probably don't. They stand at the door and look in the window. Yeah, he's in there again, Dom. Yep, sitting right there in the middle of all those notorious sinners. You know, I saw that one guy over there in the post office yesterday. Wow, I hate it when the church does that. I hate that the church has that reputation. But we've earned it pretty much, I think. Man, we've earned it. We stare in the window of the lost sheep bar and grill and won't go in and help. We're somehow afraid that if we touch their hummus, God's not going to let us into heaven. The Pharisees are upset because Jesus is doing the very thing he's describing. Do you notice who's listening in this story? Are the Pharisees listening? the lost sheep and they're listening intently you want to understand the Mary and Martha story read this and then go read the Mary and Mar- Martha story Martha's out there cooking in the kitchen doing the thing to prepare for the 13 men that are sitting out there in her, in her living room and her sister's sitting with Jesus listening intently because you got three years to hear from Jesus get all you can get while the getting is good her value system is a little upside down. It's kind of counterculture. She's, she's like, hey, let them eat leftovers. I want to hear Jesus. The disciples wouldn't like that, but Jesus loved it. Let these guys get their own sandwich from the fridge. I want to hear what Jesus has to say. And Jesus says, Mary has chosen the better thing. We always want to defend Martha in this story, right? Because we think that's, you know, it's pretty bad that Martha gets kind of ragged on here. Jesus doesn't rag on people. All he's saying is in, in the real, real picture here, she's chosen the thing, the thing. Some up to upside down things of note. Somebody ought to look at that because it took me a long time to get upside down written upside down. <laughs> when he has found it, remember to find something. You need to be looking for something. We rarely, rarely find things we weren't looking for. Occasionally, but not, not often. The message Jesus is saying is that you go out and you look for the one that's lost. You actually pursue it. When you figure out what your calling is, you pursue that calling. When that holy discontent is stirring in your heart, you know for a fact that you're secure in Jesus so you can walk in to that lost sheep bar and grill and be untainted by the unholy hummus. Because you've gone on a mission for God. Get it? He went out to find them. And, and then when he finds his sheep, he will joyfully, what's the word? Carry it home. Do you remember we talked for a, a long time, a few years ago, those of you who weren't here, I apologize. We talked for a long time about the story, the, the third story in this list of the, 
the, the son that was lost. And I, I told you the great piece that's missing in that story is this piece that, that the father runs out to find him and walks him all the way back to the house, walks with him all the way home. Here it is in this piece, this, this, this first of that trio of stories. When he finds the lost sheep, he puts it on his shoulders and he carries it home upside down. Rulers are carried by their subjects. Subjects are not carried by their rulers. And yet here's Jesus when he finds the lost sheep. He puts it on his shoulders and he walks it all the way back home. You know where you want to be in this story? Right there. And the government will be upon his shoulders. We've always taken that as a very political statement. But what if it just meant you? What if it just meant me? That on the shoulders of Jesus is where the people of God ride. Because... We don't even know the way home. Amazing how he just flips things. When he gets home, he has said, he says, "Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep." That the lost sheep, while they were lost, were still his sheep. Don't forget this. If you're sitting here today and you're saying, I'm, I've been hanging out at the lost sheep bar and grill for the last 25 years. I, I know that place well, but this whole thing about Jesus and the church, and all, I'm not into that. I'm not for that. I don't want that. I'm here because my wife, my, my cousin, my nephew, whatever, dragged me in here this morning. If you're that guy, if you're that woman this morning... Understand that you're never not his sheep. He went and found his sheep. Rejoice with me for I have found my sheep. We're never outside of that. No matter where we find ourselves, we're never beyond the recognition that we are His. And it doesn't have to be our recognition. The, sh- the sheep doesn't know who it belongs to and doesn't need to. But the shepherd does. And that's why he's going out to find it. I have a question for you now. I want to start with those of you who have accepted the grace of Jesus as your covering and you rest in his hand and you trust him. And you believe that he has you and your salvation under control. I'm going to talk to you first. The world is upside down because of sin. And what Jesus is actually doing is writing it. For those of you who have accepted Jesus and and are trusting Him and are content resting in His faith, in your faith in Him, believing that He has you in His arms. You're on His shoulders. Has your world righted? Or is it still disoriented? Is it still upside down? You're still so much a part of the culture at the end of 2016 that things have just been kind of, eh. You've just been kind of going along. Just nothing's disturbing you about what's going on. Nothing's causing discontent in your soul. 
There's no holy discontent bubbling on the back burners of your life. How, how has that worked for you? Has anything changed? Or maybe, it, maybe it's flipped back the other way and you've just kind of gotten cool to the things that have gone on. You've been exposed to so much that you're just out of, off kilter naturally, it seems. The, the disciples, I love these guys because they're us. The disciples, Acts 1 verse 6, after the resurrection, after 50 days with the resurrected Jesus, after what had happened to them in the upper room and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the gospel, after, after so many of those, I'm sorry, that came, just comes right after this, after so many of the things that had been happening to them through the power of the resurrected Christ, the amazing things they had seen, when Jesus is about to leave the planet for the last time, they ask this question. When they were together the last time, they asked, Master, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel now? How deep was the culture in their belly? The norms were the norms were the norms, and the resurrected Jesus didn't seem to make any difference on the norms. I want to ask you, is that you today? Are you just there? Are you just, are you just kind of been soaking up the culture for so long that it seems normal to be upside down? Your blood's not even running to your face anymore. You're just upside down. Your, your brain's reorienting and seeing things that way is normal. Have you, have you accepted it as normal to be upside down? What I want to say to you is dig into the scriptures in 2017. Face what Jesus is calling you to. Ask him to give you some holy discontent if you have none. Break away from some of the habits of the things you listen to that you embrace in yourself without thinking. Maybe it's the music you choose. Maybe it's the radio station you listen to. Maybe it's the news you indulge in. Maybe it's the, 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 the passion of your heart for, for something or some 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 activity that's keeping you sort of disoriented spiritually. Ask God what those things might be that he might flip them over. He might put you in the right orientation. You might see that your world's been upside down and be passionate about what it looks like when it's right. If you feel like a person who's here today who none of this is relating to you because you're on that lost sheep side of the coin, can I tell you, getting on the other side of the coin is the hot ticket. You've been listening to the back side of the 45 your whole life. Now, some of you have no idea what I just said. <laughs> Music used to come in a little black flat thing with grooves cut in it. There was, a, there was an A side, which was the record everybody wanted to hear. And there was a B side, which was the one nobody cared about. And you've been listening to the B side all your life. Didn't even know there was an A side available. What I'm asking you to do is flip that baby over. Look on YouTube. You'll figure out how to do it. Because there's an A side to this record. And that's the hit. That's the thing you really want. That's the thing that's going to bless you. And bless your socks off. The power of Christ in your life is on the A side of the record. The power to transform you and the world around you and the people you love and the people you touch is on the A side. Let that thing be flipped over. Listen to the right side. Listen to the side God's been trying to get you to listen to the whole time. 
If you've been ignoring God, listening to the B-side all this time, I want to invite you. I want to challenge you. I want a third grade tell you don't be a chicken. Flip the record. Because, man, the the, the cool life, the amazing life, is a life when things are oriented to God's orientation. That's where the authority, the power, the transformation, and the purpose lives. So 2017, and maybe for the rest of your life, I want to challenge you and encourage you to follow after the things of Christ. To look for what God has intended for you to see all of your life. To be challenged and to be in service where God has your heart and he's reset the way you think. Let's pray. Father in heaven, make us discontent about the things you're discontented with. Help us to teach the radical religion of Jesus. The kind of religion that changes the world. That turns it upside right. Father, I pray for your spirit to get a hold of us. To make us less comfortable with the things you're uncomfortable with. And to make us more oriented to the things you have laid out in front of us. Lord, please take us on your shoulders so that we might be riding with you back home.